Lord Jesus, you reign in heaven and on earth. Come rule in our hearts. Come rule in our minds. Come and fill this place with your light and your life and transform us into your image for your glory and for the good of the world. We pray it in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, during the season of Lent, this season, we fast so that we can feast. During Lent, we fast so that we can feast. Uh, we, we set aside some of the things that fill up our lives so that we can feast on the things that are most important, the spiritual nourishment that we need the most, but that has a tendency to get pushed uh, to the side. Uh, it's easy to think about uh, the work that we need to do often. I mean, it, it's a work of breaking the power of lesser lords in our life. And some of them are really obvious, and addressing them is really obvious. I mean, I think social media is like a really good example because in the last 10 years, many of us have recognized, well, it tends to fill up my life. It has a lot of power over me. And fasting from it is pretty straightforward. I'm just going to step away from a little while. So that's a common practice. Uh, but there are other powers in our lives they're a lot harder to think about how we might address them during the season of Lent. Uh, during this uh, year, uh, during Lent this year at St. Andrews, we're talking specifically about money and its place in our heart, uh, which is, of course, fearful and terrible work. Um, but it, it's, it's work that we know we need to do, right? Anyone who's being honest is going to confess that money has a lot of power over our minds and our hearts. Um, we're going to be honest and confess that now, money has a tendency to sort of fill in the places where God is meant to be. It tends to become our source of security. It's very tied up with our identity and whether or not we think we're succeeding or not. Um, it becomes our hope for the future very easily. In many ways, we look to money for salvation uh, because there's a part of us that believes if we just had more of it, all of our problems could be solved, right? So we know that there is work to do here, but what does that work look like? I mean, most of us aren't going to pick up the phone this week and call, like, our employers or customers and, and say, like, please, uh, no payments for the next 40 days, please. I'm fasting for money. So if you're not going to do that, like, what does the work look like? How do we do it? Well, that's our question today. We're going to think about what it looks like to deal with the place of money in our hearts during this Lenten season. And to do that, I want to start by saying this. Um, following Jesus can be scary. It can be. He is the Lord of all creation, and his claim on our lives is total. And if we take that seriously, it can be pretty scary. I, I think uh, that many of us uh, find that our spiritual lives are, are less powerful than we would like for them to be because we kind of approach God the same way that a kid approaches their parents when they've stayed up past their bedtime. Now, I don't know if you've been this kid or if you have this kid, uh, but the kid can't leave. They, they know they have to stay kind of close, but they try to become invisible. They just kind of try to blend into the furniture because they know if mom and dad see them, they're going to make them go to bed. Well, I think we tend to approach God this way too because we're afraid that if he notices us, if we take, our, if we take this Christianity stuff too seriously, if we really get God's attention, he may ask us for things that we do not want to give him. We don't want him to do that. If we've been around church for very long, again, speaking of money, we've probably heard the story of the rich young ruler, this guy who goes to the trouble to get himself in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, uh, sell everything that you have and, and give all the money to the poor. We don't want that to happen to us. 
Uh, If we're honest, it's kind of our worst nightmare. We're terrified uh, that if we put ourselves in front of Jesus, he might say something like that. And so, I think very often, we want to stay close, but not too close. Maybe it's just me. Maybe, maybe, I'm, uh, <laughs> maybe none of you deal with anything like this. Um, but it's something I've thought about a lot in my life. And uh, there was a moment in particular in college where it was a real time of spiritual growth. Um, a lot of really good things were happening. And I found that God was asking me kind of one thing after another to surrender new things to him, new parts of my life that I really hadn't given up yet, that, that I, he was asking me for. And, and it was hard every time to give him whatever that part of my life was. And whenever I did, I was always glad that I had. It was always life-giving. It was always good. But I found that I, I was just like, ah, wouldn't it be good if this work of surrender were finished? Wouldn't it be good if it was done? Um, it's really hard work. And, and so I wondered, like, I wonder, what would happen if you just gave everything to God all at once? Can you do that? And so that's not the whole motivation, but it's part of what I think led me to being a missionary in West Africa. There was some part of me that thought, if I leave everything behind and I go to a place where I have nothing and my whole life is built around serving Jesus, the work of surrender will finally be done. Well, I got there and I went to sleep the very first night and I woke up the next morning and I remember it really clearly. I had this really powerful sense of him saying, like, as soon as I woke up, are you going to follow me today? I was just like, I'm not done yet. <laughs> like I'm, I'm still having to do the work of surrender today. And, and the answer was yes. And every, every day thereafter, moment by moment, and I knew this, but I still don't know it all the way through. The truth that I learned was that he wasn't after my money or my stuff or my time or even my freedom or anything that I could give him. He was after me. And he was after me then there's no point in my life where he's not calling me to give myself to him. The work of surrender is never over. And that can sound pretty hard, but it's good news. It's really good news. The truth is he doesn't want us to give him everything we have. He doesn't want us to give him everything that we are as some kind of like brutal test of loyalty. He's not trying to find out how much we're willing to suffer. He's calling us to give everything to him Because he loves us. Because we are made for him. He is what we need. In him we are destined for eternal glories that everything else pales in comparison to. Now if I was going to try to frame this up in more traditional theological terms, I would say when we receive Jesus' free gift of love, when we call him Lord and Savior and submit ourselves to him, submit our sins to him, and he makes us right with God, We're saved. We call that justification. And that is a moment that is complete. But there's a new kind of work that begins after that, work that we would call sanctification. Sanctification doesn't have anything to do with earning anything from God. It has everything to do with aligning our lives with what Jesus has already accomplished. He made us holy, so now we're going to try to go and learn how to live that way. He made us righteous. We're going to try to go and learn how to live that way. He's caught us up in the love of the Father We're going to try to learn and go and live it out. Not to earn anything, but because he saved us from the power of death, and that's something that we'll enjoy in eternity, but he's also saved us from our own sin and brokenness. And that's a truth that's breaking into the world right now, or at least it's meant to. Something we're meant to lay hold of, never perfectly, but bit by bit, day by day, being reshaped into his image. You see, there's no part of your life that Jesus does not want to rule, 
Because there's no part of your life that he doesn't want to heal and bless. Wherever Jesus is king, he is also savior. Wherever he is ruling, wherever he's in charge, life springs up from the ground. If you want to see your past healed, you give it to him. If you want to see transformation in your relationships, you submit them to him. And well, friends, the truth is money touches just about everything. So if you want to see the kingdom of God breaking in all over the place, we're going to need to give that to him too. Now, hold up a minute, you may say, preacher man. Are you saying that I have to give all my money to God or not? Be clear. Speak plainly. Friends, God does not need your money. He doesn't need it. He, every, every molecule, every atom, every quark is his. He created everything and sustains everything. The only reason anything exists right now is because he is sustaining it by his own grace and love and power. Right now, in this moment, he does not need your money. But he loves you, and he wants you, and it is his good, it is his good will to remove anything that's in the way. So hear me well here. The question today, my friends, is not, is money good or bad? The question isn't, am I allowed to have money? Or how much money is okay? Or how much money do I have to give away? The question is, what do you love? The question is, what do you love? And when I say, what do you love? I don't mean, what do you have warm feelings about? I mean, what do you value as ultimate? What do you value? What God wants is for you to love him and to love what he loves. Greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is God's good will for you, and it is not selfish. It's not selfish that he wants you to love him, because, friends, he is all good and all wise, and that means that loving him is the very best thing that could ever happen to you. It means that loving him is the very best thing that you could ever do for the world, The question of what do you love is the question that will inevitably shape your life, who you are, what you become, what happens around you. What do you love is the question. It is the question that this whole sermon series is aimed at, search my heart, O God. But if we're going to answer the question, what do you love, and really understand what it means, we've got to break it down into three smaller questions. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. The first is, how do you even know what you love? Like, how would you know that? How do you know what you love? The second, why do you love what you love? How did you get here? And the third question is, is what I love in keeping with what God loves? So how do you know what you love? How did you come to love what you love? And is what you love in keeping with what God loves? Now this first question sounds really obvious. Like, how do you know what you love? How could I not know? I'm me. Of course I know what I love. Of course I know what I value. But I want to argue that it's not obvious at all. I have noticed in myself and in people throughout my life that there is almost always, sometimes a very large gap, but there's almost always a gap between what we say is important to us, even what we think is important to us, and the values that actually drive our day-to-day decision-making. You know what I'm talking about? So like, if you want to know what's most important to me, you can ask me, and I'll tell you, what I think, and I may even be trying to be honest, but there's a good chance I'm a little bit deceived about that. If you want to know what I actually value as ultimate, what you've got to do is look at my life. Look at the choices 
that I'm making. Look at what I'm saying yes to. Look at what I'm saying no to. The thing making those choices is my set of values, and it's being played out. So it's inevitably visible in the choices that I make. That's what I love. That's the truth about what I love. And so what I'm pointing to is is that it's necessary for us to begin to pay attention to the gap between the values that we would claim for ourselves, what we say we love, and what we actually love, the values that drive our life. So how do you know what you love? You look at your actual life. Now, how did we get here? Why do I love what I love? How did I come to love the things that I love? Which is especially an interesting question if I'm noticing that I'm loving things that I didn't even, <laughs> I couldn't have even told you were that important to me. I mean, again, a concrete example would be maybe I say that God's the most important thing to me. But maybe that's more of an aspirational claim than a fact. Maybe I say my family's what's most important to me. But again, maybe that's what I wish were true. Um, if I actually look at my life, is money is a great example, the thing that's actually driving the decisions that I make that causes me to choose this and not that again and again and again. How did I come to love what I actually love? How did I come to value what I value? I want to say two things that, that shape what we love. But first, I have to dispel a myth. The myth and it's a really common and powerful one in our culture, is that love is like a force of nature, a thing that you don't have any control over. It just kind of comes and goes as it wills. And all you can do is try to like, catch it and be true to it. And there's some truth in that. But the truer thing, the more important thing, is that love is like a garden. Um, love is a thing that uh, when you invest in something, you come to appreciate it and care more about it appreciate and care more for it. When you don't invest in things, they tend to wither in your heart. Um, This isn't just like an idea that I thought of. It's what Jesus says. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So whatever you invest yourself in, whatever you give yourself to, whatever you pursue, you're going to care more and more and more about that. You will become more invested in it over time. There's a trajectory to our values. They're taking us somewhere. Our behaviors are taking us somewhere. Um, so every day we're learning to love some things more and other things less. But we usually don't think about it. It's not something we're conscious that we're doing, but, uh, but we are. Um, so where am I putting my treasure, right? Like that's an important question. Uh, there's another part to this, like why do I love what I love? How did I get to this place where I love the things that I love? In addition to the fact that we're investing in loving certain things, Uh, We learn to love by seeing what other people love. We learn what to value by seeing what other people value. So if I'm surrounded by people who are making sacrifices for something, uh, it's it's just almost impossible for me not to begin to see that thing as very important also. Maybe not consciously, but in my heart, heart of hearts. So the people that I work with, the social media that I consume, the shows that I watch, the people that I talk to, my family of origin, are all shaping what I think is most important. And if I want to know where I got the idea that Whatever it is that I'm pursuing is the most important thing. I'm going to look those places and find out that those things uh, were, that thing was held up in all of those places probably. So if I do this work, if I take stock of my life and I see, if I look under the hood and see what's actually driving my decisions, and I start to notice where is it taking me? What am I actually investing in loving more? What is my love growing for? And what is my love... Uh, you know, where is love dying in my heart? What am I not investing in? Then the obvious question is, well, the things that I found there, my values, are they in keeping with God's values? Do I love what he loves? How would I know? 
Well, I've got to look to Scripture, right? I've got to look to God's Word, and it's going to communicate this to me. This is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's an important one. Um, maybe you can improve on it, but my working definition for wisdom is the ability to love what God loves. Uh, wisdom has everything to do with uh, making judgments, being able to make good judgments. And so wisdom, at its heart, is valuing things in the way that God values them. Seeing, like, a, Treating God like he's really God. Treating people the way God sees them. Uh, treating stuff the way that God sees it. So the question is, um, are my values wise? Do I love what God loves? So in regards to money, this first, or the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy speaks very clearly to God's opinion on the subject. It tells us that uh, pursuing money, letting it be a primary value that drives and direct our lives, directs our lives, is, number one, unreliable. It will let us down. Uh, having money as a primary value that drives our lives will lead us into all sorts of evil. It will cause us to do harm. Um, loving, having money as a primary value will cause us to be pierced with many pangs. It will ha- cause us to do harm to ourselves. That's what Scripture says about the love of money, about having it as a primary value. So if we look into our lives and find that it is indeed the love of money that is, or to the extent that we find that the love of money is driving us through life, and the question is, what do we do about that? How do we move from uh, searching our hearts to changing them? And in the way of wrapping up, I'm going to offer four things that I think we're invited to do in this Lenten season Uh, that helps us move from just searching our hearts to changing them. And it's all going to come from things we've already talked about. So if we want to see change in our heart in this Lenten season, I think the first step is what I've already said, and that's uh, to begin to pay attention to our actual lives. Become curious. Become an observer of your own life and choices. I don't just mean while you're sitting here, but like as you go out and live your life in real time, moving through your days, start to ask the question, what do I love? Like, what values are actually shaping the choices that I'm making all day long? Notice that. Start to pay attention to that and ask the question, how does that line up with what I would say I value if someone asked me about what I want to value, about what I think is most important in my head? How am I living that? And more than that, where is it taking me? Like, if I keep doing the things that I'm doing, what am I going to love more in 5, 10, 15 years? And those things that I say are important, perhaps God, uh, where is my heart going to be in regards to him? Will I love him more or less if I continue the pattern of life that I'm living right now? I encourage you to go out and pay attention to these things. Not unto shame, not unto self-loathing. We're all broken in these ways. But unto healing, unto transformation. So as you go out and do this paying attention kind of work, The second thing that I encourage you to do is simply to pray. It's obvious, but have you ever prayed that God would deliver you from the love of money? (laughs) It's a pretty terrifying thing to pray, isn't it? Scary. But money has so much power in our culture, so much power over us. I I don't think there's any changing here apart from supernatural help. So if we're going to take this thing on, prayer has got to be a big part of any solution. So we pay attention to our lives and we begin to pray for God's help trusting that it's his good will to deliver us in this. And then the third thing is we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And the way we do that is through Scripture. 
we want to be looking at his life, at how he relates to money, and how the other people in Scripture relate to money. And we're doing that because if it's true that we learn what to value by seeing what other people around us value, seeing what they love, if love tends to rub off on us, if values tend to rub off, when we look at the world around us, it's hard to find different examples. We're all caught up in money in various ways. Um, But when we look to Jesus we can begin to have a different imagination for how to relate to money. So again, we're going and and, and reading the life of Christ, not just for new information, but to have our minds renewed, to have new possibilities opened up. And what I want to suggest is that when you look at him, when you look at his life, what you're going to see is that Jesus isn't teaching people to hate money. The point isn't that he's anti-money. That's not what he's doing. Instead, what you'll see him doing is loving something else a whole lot more. His life is built around uh, more, (laughs) uh, his life is built around better loves. He is pursuing better and greater loves. And so money is simply uh, relativized. It's pushed out of the way by the more beautiful and important things that he's pursuing, which is obedience to the Father. That's what he's after. He's after loving the Father and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what, these are the things that animate Jesus's life and his followers' lives. So when we see that, we begin to catch an imagination also for what it might look like to live for something greater, something better. And that brings us to the fourth thing, which is there's an opportunity uh, to actually step into what we've seen there. If we start to pay attention, if we start to pray, if we start to look to Jesus and have a new imagination for how to relate to money or how to live for something better, then the fourth fourth step is that we would begin to invest our lives concretely in those better loves. Um, If it's true that our loves are shaped by the things that we pursue, if your treasure is in the, your heart is in the place where your treasure is, if investment moves our heart, uh, then we can start to invest in better loves. We we don't have to want to do it. Uh, We don't have to have already had our hearts changed. We can choose, even in very small ways, to start to act in new ways that are taking our hearts where we would like for them to go. And I think a simple word to cover the work that we would want to do here is generosity. Um, You go a little further into uh, 1 Timothy 6, and he starts to talk about that. Um, To begin to act in small ways generously has the power over time uh, to help reform our hearts, to reshape our hearts more in keeping with God's wisdom and in keeping with the love of him and what he loves. And I trust that when we do that, we will actually find uh, a transformation taking place in us. Now, why would, again, why do we do those things? Why would we begin to pay attention to our lives and pray for God's help and uh, set our eyes on Jesus in the way that he relates to money and start to practice generosity in small ways to invest our heart in new places? Why would we do that? Not to earn anything from God, but again, because he loves us and because he wants to transform us from the top to the bottom um, not to beat us up, but to actually call us into something better than the things that we would chase on our own. It's his love and grace to us that he would invite us into something like this. Now, I don't present all of this as a hypothetical. Um, In a moment, I want to offer something concrete. We're going to come to the table. We're going to come on our knees. uh, And as you come, here's the invitation. First and foremost, I invite you to come honestly. I invite you to come before Jesus honest about how scary it is to even begin to talk to him about money, (laughs) Uh, to even begin to to, um, think about submitting our financial lives to him in the place of money in our life. Be honest about that. And as you're honest, um, 
with your eyes on the cross and with your eyes on the bread and the wine, let it be a sign to you, the bread and the wine, his broken body and blood, that he loves you this much that he would be broken and poured out. While you were still a sinner, he loves you this much. And that means you can trust him. You can trust him that he's not trying to harm you. He's not trying to manipulate you. He's not like the other every person in the world who's trying to extract your money from you by manipulating you in some way. He's actually inviting you into freedom. And he's merciful and gracious in our weakness and inability to receive that. So just come, honest about how hard it is, with your eyes on the cross, trusting that it is his love that's the invitation, and submit what other, whatever other lords are being uncovered, whatever place that you're finding that money has in your life. Submit that to him and receive the better thing. Receive his love. Receive his presence. Receive his invitation. And as you do, I pray that you would be empowered to go out and continue living an investment deeper and deeper into the wisdom of God, into loving him and what he loves. And as we do, um, we will become a testimony to the world. Lord Jesus, none of this is possible apart from your power. I'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone. Come and deliver us from the love of money. Come, don't just teach us to hate stuff. Teach us to love you more. Teach us to love what you are about. And may love of you become the greatest love in our lives. We pray it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.